0: Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 116 in the European Style. First, I want to thank a few people, quite a few people. It's been a generous month. So we've had new donations from Rowan Shi, Milena Pev- uh, Palava, Anna Gansheva, and Andrei Andreev, as well as to thank new patrons, David Faber and Nikolai Verbanov. So yeah, I, I don't know how all of you are being so generous with the, the economic hardships and things that are ravaging people all around the world, but my sincerest thanks to all of you. Uh, I really appreciate it. So let's get into it. Last time, we left off at the moment of peace negotiations, just when they were beginning in Paris, to see the three years of fighting between the Allies uh, and the Ottomans, well, to finish up. The Crimean War had seen hundreds of Bulgarians fight with the Russians or plot against the Ottomans in the hope that it might bring Bulgaria the independence that so many of its more educated and powerful people really craved. Again, I think everyday peasants, some of them without a doubt wanted this, but a lot of them I don't think were very aware of what was kind of going on and, and were, were kind of thinking of grand ideas about Bulgarian revival and independence. But as we know, Russia miscalculated in this war. It could not hold its own against France, Britain, the Ottomans and Sardinia Piedmont at once. After Austria sent peacekeeping troops to occupy Wallachia and Moldavia, the war had moved to the Crimean Peninsula, where the Allies failed to win a quick victory, leading to a slow and very bloody siege at Sevastopol. Meanwhile, the Ottomans began taking enormous loans to help fund the war, bringing the state crippling debt and forcing it to allow tax farmers to return to their abusive practices in places like Bulgaria. But some Bulgarians thrived, during the wartime, by providing food and materiel for that war. But before we get to see the war's impact on Bulgaria, let's discuss the treaty which ended it. Signed on March the 30th, 1856, the Treaty of Paris was light on territorial changes for reasons that should be clear. Britain and France were running the show here, and they really wanted the status quo in the region. They weren't looking for sweeping changes. They had no illusions about restoring the territory or power of the old Ottoman state, though they did want the Ottoman Empire to be strong enough to maintain itself and thereby maintain the European balance of power. Their main goal was for Russia to be humbled and to stop its expansion. So, the only territorial changes were that a bit of Bessarabia, which Russia had annexed in 1812, was returned to Moldavia. Otherwise, Russia's losses were more in territory in which it could operate. It would no longer be the protector of Christians in the Ottoman Empire. France would now hold that role. It had to pull back and no longer influence the principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia. And, worst for the Russians, their navy, at least the military portion, was banned from the Black Sea. Now, considering the Russian Black Sea fleet had sunk the Ottoman fleet before being scuttled in Sevastopol, The Black Sea was now functionally demilitarized. This meant that peaceful trade could return, something very beneficial for the Bulgarian economy and its merchants in particular. It also meant that the Ottomans could focus on internal matters because Britain and France were now guaranteeing its territorial integrity. In theory, this meant that the powers of Europe were now even more against the idea of Bulgarian independence than before because, again, they are now guaranteeing Ottoman territorial integrity, and that is very much, you know, against the idea of an independent Bulgaria. The war also caused hundreds of thousands of Tatars to flee Crimea into the Ottoman realm, fearing Russian reprisals as soon as Russia retook control of the peninsula. Overall, I think the real irony here was that the war ultimately guaranteed the territorial integrity of the Ottoman Empire and but also kind of saddled the Ottoman Empire with crippling debt, which would cause it to struggle to keep itself together. So it it kind of helped and hurt the Ottomans in, in equal measures, or maybe not that equal in the long run. As for Russia, its economy was in shambles. Hundreds of thousands of its soldiers were dead, and its new Tsar Alexander was humbled on the world stage, and also had to, as a result, focus on internal stability for the time being. Russia was now more isolated on the world stage than ever. Austria had been its arch-conservative ally for decades, but Russia now deeply resented them for acting against Russia in the war and not being more grateful for the intervention of Russian troops after the revolutions of 1848. Ironically, this all would actually lead to Austria's even further decline as a power because Austria no longer had that strong ally to help it in the coming wars against France and Prussia. Serbia also gained greater autonomy and independence in this new kind of European status quo. So, overall, the war did create temporary peace and balance in Europe, but effectively did nothing to stop the growing trends of nationalism which were upsetting that order in the Ottoman, Russian, Austrian, German, and Italian lands. And Bulgarian to throw that in there. So, without a doubt, the Crimean War really set the stage for conflicts to follow and i think it's also important to note that by making Russian, R- russia weaker it makes bulgarians less likely and able to use russia as a potential kind of benefactor for helping them gain independence which could be bad because well, russia can't help the bulgarians but It could also be good because it could also be the kind of kick uh, Bulgarians need to decide, okay, we need to do this on our own. We can't kind of assume or rely on foreign help because, well, foreign help usually doesn't come. You know, time will tell which of those really plays out, but both are definite possibilities. Also, I think it's worth mentioning that like the American Civil War, which was only a few short years from breaking out, the Crimean War is considered kind of the first modern war for a number of reasons. It debuted new technologies like exploding shot, ironclad warships, railways, steamships, and modern medical systems. It also saw public opinion become more important than ever as newspapers and journalists covered the war and reported on it almost in real time, also taking the very first photographs of war most people had ever seen. So suddenly this previously far-off event war was much closer to people, much more real, and... Again, that really impacted public opinion, and that public opinion now had a stronger-than-ever impact on politics. Now, let's get into the war's more specific effects on Bulgarians. I kind of alluded to this before. Now, Misha Glennie's analysis is that, quote, The war lessened Russian power and influence, and it left the Bulgarians with a choice between pressing ahead on their own or finding an alternative sponsor. The former was always the more popular strategy. And it was one encouraged by the Hathi Hamayun, the port's declaration of intent issued at the conclusion of the war to further reform of the imperial administration. End quote. So that touches on what I just talked about—that you know, the 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 idea of Bulgarians kind of pressing on on their own because. You know, Austria has long since declined as a potential benefactor, and now Russia has declined as a potential benefactor. You know, Western powers like France and Britain are no-goes because they're guaranteeing Ottoman internal uh, security. You know, Serbia has repeatedly shown itself very uninterested in really helping. So, you know, the Bulgarians are pretty much out of luck. But what about that Hat-i-Hamayun, which Misha Glennie alluded to? Now, this is more commonly called the Ottoman Reform Edict of 1856, and it was another step in the Tanzimat reforms, although one heavily influenced by the British and French. Now, to give you an idea of what it was about, I want to read you its opening paragraph. It stated, quote, The guarantees promised on our part by the Hat-i Hamayun of Gulhane, and in conformity with the Tanzimat, to all subjects of my empire, without distinction of classes or Or of religion, for the security of their persons and property, and the preservation of their honor are here today conformed and consolidated. The efficacious measures shall be taken in order that they may have their full and entire effect. Now, overly flowery language aside, in other words, the main goal of this reform edict was to establish a sort of basic civil rights for the empire's subjects. It stated that all Ottoman subjects would have the freedom to worship as they pleased and that no one could be forced to convert to another religion. It also standardized the responsibilities and salaries for religious figures, including Orthodox officials, hoping to tackle the rampant corruption in the Greek Orthodox Church that we've discussed. I know in previous episodes I've also talked about how, especially in the more modern period, the Ottoman Empire is not very interested in kind of converting its subjects to Islam, mostly because the main thing the Ottoman Empire wants at this point in history is stability so the empire can continue to exist. And the people running the empire know very well that religious tensions and forced conversions and things is a recipe for revolt, rebellion, chaos, and, well, the dissolution of the empire. And so I think that's one of the reasons we see that specifically mentioned there. Now, this edict also formally set out new functions for the Ottoman state, more in line with European norms. The central government would now raise money for infrastructure improvements like roads and canals. And the state was also to set up a military and civil education system to be open to kind of more of its citizens, envisioning a kind of public-private partnership to establish more schools. Importantly for non-Muslim subjects, it also set about judicial reforms, while conflicts between Muslims would still be handled by Sharia courts, if any non-Muslim were involved, then a public tribunal would be held to determine the outcome. Finally, the edict allowed for official business and publications to be done in languages other than Ottoman. Now, for Bulgarians aiming at an independent church, the Tanzimat reformers who pushed these changes were potential allies. Misha Gleni writes how, quote, The Tanzimat-Chilar, Supported the movement for an independent Bulgarian church, as this would undermine the Milet system in favor of Osman Luciluk. Pasha, in particular, believed that this policy of divide and rule would weaken the influence of the Orthodox hierarchy on both the Greek and Bulgarian populations, thus strengthening the influence of the administration. He was badly mistaken. End quote. So, to translate those words right, basically, the Tanzimat supporters and you know, in favor of Osman is kind of Ottomanism, an idea of an Ottoman identity uh, that would kind of unify the empire right so in other words, you know the Bulgarians were seeing these kind of reformers as potential allies, and the reformers also thought that okay, if we can give you know the Greek and Pul- Bulgarian populations their own churches, that would kind of weaken the overall power of orthodoxy but I think as we as we know, it would be quite the opposite, because in the current status, in the current situation, you know, the central Orthodox church is mostly concerned with preserving its own power and kind of preventing the Bulgarians from enacting their reforms and gaining independence. But once that independence comes, both churches can focus on other things. And those other things in a lot, a lot of cases are probably going to be, you know, some level of kind of supporting independence movements, although. Whether the Greek Orthodox Church would ever do that at this point is up in the air, because thus far they have been strongly against even Greek independence, because they're so invested in the Ottoman system. But for now, it's clear that Ottoman officials are looking for ways to balance the rising nationalism and discontent of their empire to strengthen their efforts to reform it into a more European power which could hold its own on the world stage. That was already having good and bad effects on Bulgarians, as we've seen. In fact, many of the changes brought about by the Reform Edict of 1856 were welcomed by Bulgarians, but just as many viewed them with strong displeasure. Because while Bulgarians were gaining rights, those new rights were also accompanied by an increasingly powerful central government, not exactly a welcome development for Bulgarians still hoping for independence. Speaking of these changes... Raina Gavrilova writes in her book Bulgarian Urban Culture in the 18th and 19th Centuries that, quote, Perhaps the most significant change in urban surroundings reflected the new attitude towards the physical environment was the attempts to improve the image, sanitation, and organization of urban territory. Some representatives of the Ottoman administration, compelled to break their se- secular tupper, man- pl- played an important role in these efforts. After the Crimean War, the Ottoman government tried to divert the crisis and to stimulate development by passing numerous laws and decrees aimed at modernizing the empire. They bore some fruit only in places where modern, open-minded people were appointed to replace the illiterate, lazy, and corrupt officials who were the rule in the provinces. End quote. In other words, as should be no surprise to any of you listeners, the actual implementation of this order was widely variable. But we'll see how that plays out over the coming episodes. But, you know, thus far in the Tons about Reforms, we've seen time and time again that just because the sultan makes some decree often means very little on the ground in the empire. Now, besides these changes coming from the top, the Crimean War in its aftermath also had many effects on Bulgaria in a more kind of ground up manner. During the conflict, Bulgarians had marveled at all the foreigners that they saw in ports like Varna and began to imitate their dress, manner of speaking, etc. Ivan Ilchev writes on the interactions between Bulgarians and foreigners during the Crimean War, stating, Bulgarians watched foreigners with curiosity and envy and did their best to emulate their ways, from the manner of speech to the way they dressed. Thus, the seventh decade of the 19th century Saw West Europeans wondering at the prosperous Bulgarian towns and villages and marveling at the well dressed citizens, even when that consisted of a peculiar mixture of traditional dress and French fashion. End quote. Now, Gavrilova writes in describing this dress and the changes in clothing that Bulgarians had in more details, writing, quote, Changes in the traditional costume were slow until the beginning of the 19th century. The first alteration was the substitution of the folk peasant costume by urban Greek and Turkish attire, the introduction of the shalwar, a woman's long silk panties a la grec, and the preference for the small fez covered with a scarf over the woman's archaic head garment and men's fur cap. Ivan Bogorov, an alert and shrewd observer in his description of the town of Samakov in 1846, defines the costume as Greco-Turkish. Only 13 years later, there was a special European-style tailor in the same town. Petko left a description of the urban costume in Turnovo, which bore the marks of this transitory stage, where Greek-Turkish clothes prevailed, but the tights, i.e. the person dressed in tight and straight European-style suits that contrasted with the very large, loose Turkish trousers, were gaining popularity. Salvador Propolni found it curious that three brothers in Schumann were dressed in different manners. Two of them wore traditional folk costumes, while the third used a French suit. Such mixed styles could be observed in many small towns. Young women in Konobrat in 1866 wore fashionable dresses of fine European fabrics, but with the long Greek shalwar underneath. The fez became widespread after the Crimean War. And this was the single element of clothing that was unanimously accepted, and until the end of the 19th century, it remained the main difference between peasant and urban costumes. The change in head garments was slow and reluctant. The acceptance of bareheaded women did not spread until the 1860s. The introduction of the fez was considered a major innovation. An unknown man from Gabreville found it important enough to be entered in the family annals. Quote, "Today, I wore a fez for the first time." Nikola Nachov's grandfather, Nacho, made the acquisition of his first fez an event. The first Slivninyot to wear the fez was called Nikola Fezli. The acquaintance with the European style men's hat was another amazement and remained a curiosity until 1878. Now, Gavrilva actually points out that the first European tailors existed in Bulgaria before the Crimean War, but that their numbers grew rapidly following it. A funny fact is that because the European clothes were tighter, adopting them became known as tightening oneself. And today, that same term in Bulgarian means something more like getting your act together. Now, other terms for trouser wearers and shoe wearers were used as shorthand to indicate what kind of person someone was. Hairstyles became more European, with young men beginning to sport beards, which had previously basically been reserved for their grandfathers and priests. So Overall, we're seeing a dramatic increase in Europeanization of clothing and a mixture of these clothings and people using clothes to indicate who they are, how modern they are, how European they are, all these kinds of things, which to anyone living today shouldn't be a big surprise. We still communicate a tremendous amount of information about ourselves by our clothing. Now, speaking of grandfathers, though, another tradition involving them was beginning to change. In the past, Bulgarians, like many people around the world, did not have family names as we do today. A child's first name would often be taken from a grandparent, and their second name would simply be their father's name with ovar ova after it, which, if you're familiar, is kind of what the Icelanders do today, minus the grandfather for the first name. But during the 19th century, more formal family names began to develop as they did in many places most of these would simply be taken from informal names that they had before, i.e. from the father's name. So, for example, if your name was Ivan and your father was Petko, then you might have been Ivan Petkov before, and your son might be Petko Ivanov after his grandfather. But once more formal family names came to Bulgaria, names like Ivanov or Petkov, well, they began to be taken as permanent family names. However, that tradition of taking a name from the father also remained but as the middle name, which is how Bulgarians do it today. Your middle name is your father's name with ov or ova at the end, depending on if you're a boy or a girl. Now, in some cases, though, family names were taken from other things, like the Fezli example I mentioned. Another famous case was the soon-to-be Prime well, a few decades from now, Prime Minister Alexander Stumboliski. I always liked the name of his, uh, the kind of story of his name. Now, his father had been a merchant who traveled to Istanbul very often, and so his fellow villagers called his father Stamboliski as a kind of joke, and it basically stuck and became the family's name. Now, these cultural changes were pushed onwards by the centralizing reforms of the Ottomans and the grassroots work of the countless Bulgarians bringing more education, ideas, and wealth to their homeland. For example, just as the Crimean War was ending, the first Bulgarian reading room, a kind of cultural center, opened in Svistov. In just about two decades, another 185 of these rooms would open, leading Bulgarian writer Ivan Vazov to refer to them as Bulgaria's Ministry of Education. Just as important for the quickening development of the Bulgarian national revival was the increasing foreign influences during this period, which we've already alluded to. In addition to more overseas trade, bringing European goods like fabric, metal goods, beer, clothing, furniture, and industrial products into Bulgaria's markets, the European powers began to open consulates in cities like Bitola, Russe, Varna, Burgas, Sofia, and Plovdiv, which served to quicken the expanding European influence in these places. In other words, more and more Bulgarians were wealthy or at least middle class and therefore were able to access European products and European ideas. Still, Gavrilova points out that the increasing outwardly European looks of the people in places within Bulgaria didn't necessarily mean that their mindsets were changing as well, particularly for women, writing, quote, By all measurements, this external civilization was far ahead of the expected intellectual and educational progress, exactly as the critics stated. Still, the new fashion was closely connected to the overall advancement. The spread of education for girls, which was fairly non-existent in the early 19th century, the sprouting of formerly unthinkable women's associations supporting their claims for a place in social life, the first publications by women in newspapers and journals, and the growing number of female teachers who traveled from town to town and earned their wages were all steps towards a new status for women. It gave them enough self confidence to put on European dresses and walk in the street. Undoubtedly, however, the low living standards and the transplantation of entirely novel external trends on local soil produced many comic, often ludicrous outfits that were ridiculed by male intellectuals. Quote. She goes on to point out that, no surprise here, the older generations were horrified by the new ways of living that were becoming popular amongst young Bulgarians, men and women alike. This older generation believed that the young were now spending lavishly on clothes and were not working as hard as they themselves had. They were aghast that women were becoming more independent and were able to do things like visit coffee houses or even taverns. Shocking. But We've all heard that before, right? The older generation is always like that, and in particular, you know, during this period and quite a long ways afterwards, Bulgaria had a strong reputation for being kind of frugal and hardworking people, and so obviously these older folks had a strong sense of that for themselves as well, and were a bit horrified to see that possibly changing slightly. Now, everyday life in Bulgarian towns was also beginning to change as Sunday, as a day of rest, became more widely observed. Now, Today we take the weekend as a given, but remember, it was basically a 20th century invention pushed by the labor movement. Gavrilova even points out that towns began to experience life after dark, as instead of rushing to be home, people began to spend social time at reading rooms, associations, and the aforementioned taverns and coffeehouses. Music was also changing, as well as many of the refugees fleeing from the failed revolutions of 1848 actually brought European music with them. Gavrilova writes how, quote, a correspondent for the Tsarigradsky Vesnik newspaper was struck by the successful performance of the first European-style school band in 1851. It played from sheets of music and with different instruments, violins, guitars, flutes, clarinets, etc. And it was very difficult music at that. Quadrilles, polkas, muzarkas, chadarshas, European singing also became common practice in schools private music and dance courses were initiated. The emigrant Chafran taught European dance in some houses that had become accustomed to soirees and dances. Plovdiv was quick to accept the new fashion, and so were other big cities. Plovdiv was a major center of foreign religious missions, and the Catholic and Protestant proselytes introduced new musical instruments. The Catholic mission had a piano and organized a small orchestra, and Western religious songs. Now she goes on to point out that, quote, as showy as these were, these fashionable innovations affected only a fraction of the urban population, especially upper middle class citizens. In small towns and remote areas, national folk dances and music were the only and thus preferred music until the end of the century, end quote. In other words, while this new wealth and these new trade products and ideas, all these things coming from Europe were certainly changing Bulgaria, they were also increasing its internal class divisions, economic and cultural. As we'll see, the young people who grew up in this new, exciting, more European environment will discover that their new revolutionary European ideals about national identity and progress didn't mean very much to the poorer and rural majority of the country that they claim to represent. So we're going to talk a lot about, you know, changing Bulgarian identities and this growing gap. Thus, overall, in the aftermath of the Crimean War, Bulgaria was changing very quickly, though just what would come of all that change was very much up in the air. And, well, I'm going to finish it off here. Next time, we'll pick back up with the narrative and see how Bulgarians were more directly reacting to the new geopolitical world that they found themselves in. So... Thank you for checking us out. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, check out the link below in the episode description to see the kind of accompanying images and timelines and all that stuff for this episode. You can find a Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. And don't thank you for listening.